Chapter 9, Part 2 of Explorers and Travelers by Adolphus W. Greeley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Chapter 9, Elisha Kent Kane, Part 2. Scarcely were they moored than signs of coming winter crowded fast one after another. The flowers were blackened by frost. Long lines of flying waterfowl trended southward, leaving solitary the hard snowbird. The sun grew lower from day to day with startling rapidity, and the young ice cemented the separated old floes into one solid roadway for the sledgemen. Kane set about exploring the country and traveled some fifty miles to Mary Minturn River, whence, from adjoining high land, he had a view of Washington land, the vicinity of Cape Constitution. During this journey, he first observed the peculiar ice formation now known as the Ice Foot, but then novel. It is best described in his words. We were on a table or shelf of ice which clung to the base of rocks overlooking the sea, with huge angular blocks, some many tons in weight, scattered over its surface. Hayes and Wilson traveled some fifty miles into the interior till their further progress was stopped by the edge of the inland ice. McGarry and Bonsall, with sledge, party of seven, made three caches to the northeast, the farthest being in 79 degrees 12 minutes north, 65 degrees 25 minutes west, under the face of an enormous glacier to which the name of Humboldt was given. The winter passed quietly, the officers making tidal, astronomical, magnetic, and meteorological observations, while the men, engaged in ordinary pursuits, kept in health. Unfortunately, 57, nearly all of the dogs died, thus depriving Kane of his main reliance for field operations. The extreme cold, the mean temperature for December to March, inclusive, being 32 degrees below zero, had reduced the fuel so that the allowance was three buckets a day. Other supplies commenced to show their need or inadequacy. Oil for lamps failed, as did fresh meat from game, and unfortunately there was no canned meat, only salted. Despite his loss of dogs, Kane decided on laying out new depots, and with the advance of March, he watched eagerly the temperature. From the 10th to the 19th, the cold averaged 76 degrees below the freezing point. He started his man-sledge on the 20th, under charge of Brooks, first officer, with seven others at the drag ropes. Unfortunately, the equipment was either somewhat defective, or some of the party were inexperienced in the methods needful for self-preservation in such extreme cold. Kane gives no details of the causes of the calamity, save to say that a heavy gale from the north-northeast broke upon the party, and the temperature fell to 57 below zero. The first news of the disaster came from Sontag, Olson, and Peterson, who suddenly appeared in the cabin at midnight of March 31st, swollen, haggard, and hardly able to speak. Kane continues, They had left their companions in the ice, risking their own lives to bring us the news. Brooks, Baker, Wilson, and Pierre were all lying frozen and disabled. Where? They could not tell. Somewhere among the hummocks to the northeast. It was drifting heavily around them. Irish Tom had stayed to care for the others. It was vain to question them, for they were sinking with fatigue and hunger, and could hardly be rallied enough to tell us the direction. Kane instantly organized a relief party of ten men, which, despite his delicate physique, 
he headed himself, taking Olson, the most rational of the sufferers, in a fur bag and as lightly equipped as was possible, the rescuers moved out in a temperature 78 degrees below freezing. Olson fell asleep, but on awakening was of no use as guide owing to his delirious condition. Reaching a large level flow, Kane put up his tent and scattered his party to find traces of the lost men. Eighteen hours had now elapsed, and Kane's own party was in a deplorable state, partly owing to the extreme cold and partly to extreme nervousness arising from anxiety and sympathy. He says, McGarry and Bonsall, who had stood out our severest marches, were seized with trembling fits and short breath, and in spite of all my efforts, I fainted twice on the snow. Fortunately, Hans, the Eskimau, found a sledge track which led to the camp in a few hours, where Kane found the four men on their backs, whose welcoming greeting, we expected you, we were sure you would come, proved how great was their confidence in their commander. The day was extremely cold, and most providentially clear and sunny, but even with these favoring conditions, it was almost a miracle that they were able to drag the frozen men to the brig. The tendency to sleep, says Kane, could only be overcome by mechanical violence, and when at last we got back to the brig, still dragging the wounded men instinctively behind us, there was not one whose mind was found to be unimpaired. Baker and Schubert died. Wilson and Brooks finally recovered, losing, however, part of their feet by amputation. Kane determined to lead the next party himself and near the end of April 1854, with seven men, he attempted to lay down an India-rubber boat high up on the Greenland coast. He had, however, sadly overrated the strength of his men and of himself. About 80 miles from the brig, near Dallas Bay, one man broke down entirely, and four others were partly disabled, and their cash was made at that point with many misgivings, as bears had destroyed the stores laid down the previous autumn. The troubles of the party now commenced, for Kane, fainting while making an observation, had to be hauled back by the disabled men. Despite the moderate temperature, Kane's left foot froze, his limbs became rigid and badly swollen. Fainting spells were more frequent, and he fell into alternate spells of delirium and unconsciousness, in which state his broken-down sledge crew conveyed him by forced marches to the brig, where, says Hayes, the surgeon, he arrived nearly insensible, and so swollen by scurvy as to be hardly recognizable, and in such a debilitated state that an exposure of a few more hours would have terminated his life. Kane's wonderful recuperative powers speedily restored him from his nearly helpless condition to a state of comparative good health, but he could not conceal his evident inability to personally attempt further sledge journeys that spring. In this emergency, he decided to send a surgeon, Dr. I. I. Hayes, to explore the western shore of Smith Strait, from Cape Sabine northward, and for this purpose detailed Godfrey with the seven best dogs available. The ice over Smith Sound was extremely rough, so that progress was slow and tedious. Finally, with his provisions nearly exhausted, Hayes reached land in the vicinity of Dobbin Bay and made his farthest at Cape Hayes which, according to his observations, was in about 79 degrees 45 minutes north. Hayes was stricken with snow blindness. The journey was extremely exhausting. Godfrey broke down, and the dogs were so nearly worn out that at the last camp they abandoned sleeping bags, extra clothing, and everything except arms and instruments. 
Kane says that both men were now snow-blind on arrival at the brig, and the doctor, in a state of exhaustion, had to be led to his bedside to make his report. Impressed with Hayes's success on the west shore of Smith Sound, Kane decided to send Morton northward on the Greenland side so as to determine the extent of the frozen channel seen by Hayes from his farthest. Morton was supported by a sledge party of four men who reached Humboldt Glacier after ten days' travel, and were here joined by Eskimo Hans with a dog sledge. On the 18th, the supporting party turned homeward while Morton and Hans with the dog sledge started northward, traveling about five miles distant from and parallel with the face of Humboldt Glacier. On June 24th, Morton's northward progress was stopped by very high, perpendicular cliffs washed by open water and free from the customary ice foot. All efforts to pass around the projecting cliff, to which the name of Cape Constitution was given, proved unavailing. Morton says, The knob to which I climbed was over 500 feet in height, and from it not a speck of ice was to be seen as far as I could observe. The sea was open, the swell came from the northward, and the surf broke in on the rocks below in regular breakers. Morton, in his report, described two islands opposite Cape Constitution, Kennedy Channel as about 35 miles wide, running due north and having an unbroken mountainous land along its western limits. Twenty miles estimated, due south of Cape Constitution, Morton made the latitude by meridian altitude of the sun, 80 degrees, 41 minutes north, which by dead reckoning made the Cape 81 degrees, 1 minute. Kane gives its latitude corrected by triangulation as 81 degrees, 22 minutes north. These discoveries, strengthening Kane's belief in an open polar sea, caused him to put forth on his return such statements and generalizations as drew forth sharp criticisms, wherein the correctness and the value of all the field work of his expedition were impugned. It would be most gratifying to Americans if adverse criticisms as to distances traveled and astronomical positions determined could be refuted. It is, however, a matter of fact not of opinion, that nearly all the given latitudes are much too far to the north, while no considerable distance was traveled which was not overestimated from 50 to 100 percent. These blemishes on Kane's great work doubtless arose from the two causes. First, his implicit confidence in the ability and accuracy of his subordinates, and second, to his poetic temperament, which transformed into beauty the common things of life and enhanced their interest by striking contrasts of highlights and deep shadows. Subsequent expeditions have surveyed and charted Kennedy Channel with an accuracy leaving little to be desired, and as a result, it is now known that the open sea seen by Morton was simply the ice-free water of the southern half of Kennedy Channel, which condition obtains during a great part of each year. The descriptions of the region by Morton in his report, though simple, are yet so accurate and free from exaggeration as to prove conclusively his entire honesty. When, however, his astronomical observations and estimates of distances are considered, Morton's incompetency is apparent, as they are, in common with most of the other field work, erroneous and misleading. The latitude of Cape Constitution was overstated 52 geographic miles by Kane and 31 miles by Morton, while Kennedy Channel, instead of being 35 miles wide, ranges only from 17 to 25. The farthest mountain seen was Mount Ross, 
on the north side of Carl Ritter Bay, about 80 degrees 58 minutes north, more than 90 miles to the southward of its assumed position. Kane's personal knowledge of Morton's honesty was so complete that he placed equal confidence in his ability and accuracy, an error of judgment arising largely from Kane's great affection for his subordinate. In the meantime, the Eta Eskimo, most fortunately for Kane, had discovered and visited the advance, and through their friendly offices the expedition profited largely. The summer of 1854 disclosed the error of wintering in Rensselaer Harbor, for it passed without freeing the brig from ice. The situation, Kane relates, was most unpromising, and near the middle of July he determined on a desperate attempt to communicate with the English expeditionary vessels supposed to be at Beachy Island, several hundred miles to the southwest. Kane, with five others, started in a whaleboat, but owing to the bad ice, returned unsuccessful after an absence of 18 days. On August 18th, Kane regards it as an obvious fact that they must look another winter in the face, and says it is horrible, yes, that is the word, to look forward to another year of disease and darkness to be met without fresh food or fuel. The physical energies of the party have sensibly declined. Resources are diminished. There are but 50 gallons of oil saved from the summer seal hunt. We are scant of fuel. Our food consists now of ordinary marine stores and is by no means suited to dispel scurvy. Our molasses is reduced to 40 gallons, and our dried fruits seem to have lost their efficiency. Under these discouraging circumstances came the most trying experiences of the expedition. The majority of the party entertained the idea that escape to the south by boats was still practicable despite the lateness of the summer although Kane's own experience in the previous month had shown the futility of such an effort. Conscious, however, that he could control only by moral influence the majority who were of this opinion, he decided to appeal to them. On August 24th, he assembled the entire crew, set forth eloquently that such an effort must be exceedingly hazardous, escape southward almost improbable, and strongly advised them to forego the project. However, he ended by freely according his permission to such as were desirous of making the attempt, providing that they would organize under an officer before starting, and renounce in writing all claims upon the expedition. Nine out of the seventeen, headed by Peterson, the Danish interpreter, and Dr. Hayes, the surgeon, decided to attempt the boat journey and left the vessel, August 28th. Kane fitted them out liberally, provided every possible appliance to facilitate and promote their success, and gave them a written assurance of a hearty welcome should they be driven to return. One of the party, Riley, rejoined Kane within a few days, and well into the Arctic winter, on December 7th, Bonsall and Peterson returned through the aid of the Eskimo. They reported to Kane that their associates were some 200 miles distant, their energies broken, provisions nearly gone, divided in their council, and desirous of returning to share again the fortunes of the advance. Kane immediately sent supplies to the suffering party by the natives, and took active measures to facilitate their return, and on December 12th had the great joy of seeing the entire expedition reunited. In this connection, Kane properly notes the humane actions of the Eskimo, saying, Whatever may have been their motives, their conduct to our friends was certainly full of humanity. They drove at flying speed. Every hut gave its welcome as they halted. 
the women were ready without invitation to dry and chafe their worn-out guests. Kane, it may be added, did not allude in his official report to the Secretary of the Navy to this temporary division of his command, which, however, is told, both in his own narrative and in that of Dr. Hayes, in his Arctic Boat Journey. As winter went on, they hunted unavailingly for game, and the abundant supplies hitherto obtained from the Eta Eskimo failed. Owing to the unfavorable ice conditions, which caused a famine among the natives and reduced them to the lowest stages of misery and emaciation. Scurvy, with its varying phases, also sapped the energies of the crew, while Hayes was disabled from amputation of a portion of his frozen foot. When practically the entire crew must be said to have been on the sick list, Blake and Godfrey decided to desert and take their chances with the Eskimo. The plan being detected by Kane, Blake remained, but Goffrey deserted, and with Hans, the Eskimo, remained absent nearly a month. Godfrey, however, contributed to the support of the expedition by sending supplies of meat and later returned under duress. With the returning spring of 1855, the necessity of abandoning the brig was apparent to all. The ship was practically little more than a shell, as everything that could possibly be used without making her completely unseaworthy had been consumed for firewood. There remained in April only a few weeks' supply of food and fuel, while the solidity of the ice in the vicinity of Rensselaer Harbor indicated the impossibility of an escape by vessel. It was no slight task to move the necessary stock of provisions and stores to their boats and to the open water in the vicinity of Cape Alexander. This was, however, safely accomplished by the middle of June, the vessel having been formally abandoned on May 17th. The final casualty in the party occurred near Littleton Island, when Olsen, in a tremendous and successful effort to save a loaded sledge from loss in broken ice, so injured himself internally that he died within three days. During this retreating journey, Kane records the invaluable assistance of the Eskimo, who brought daily supplies of birds, assisted in carrying boat stores, and invariably exhibited the kindliest feelings and strictest honesty. Leaving Cape Alexander on June 15, 1854, Cape York was passed on July 21st, and crossing Melville Bay along the margin of its land ice in five days, Kane reached the north coast of Greenland on August 3rd, 47 days from Cape Alexander. At Disco, the party met Lieutenant Hartstein, whose squadron sent to relieve Kane had already visited Cape Alexander, and, learning from the natives of Kane's retreat by boat to the south, turned promptly back to the Greenland ports. Surrounded by all the comforts and luxuries which the means or thoughtfulness of their rescuing comrades of the Navy could furnish, Kane and his men made a happy journey southward to meet the grand ovation that greeted them from their appreciative countrymen in New York on October 11, 1855. Neither the anxiety of countless friends nor the skill of his professional brethren could long preserve to his family, to the Navy, and to the country the ebbing life of the gallant Kane. The disease which for twenty years had threatened his life now progressed with rapidity, and on February 16, 1857, he died at Havana, Cuba. No single Arctic expedition of his generation added so greatly to the knowledge of the world as did that of Kane's. In ethnology, it contributed the first full account of the northernmost inhabitants of the world, the Eta Eskimo. 
In natural history, it supplied extensive and interesting information as to the flora and fauna of extreme western Greenland, especially valuable from its isolation by the surrounding inland ice. In physical sciences, the magnetic, meteorological, tidal, and glacier observations were extremely valuable contributions. In geography, it extended to a higher northerly point than ever before a knowledge of polar lands, and it opened up a practical and safe route for Arctic exploration, which has been more persistently and successfully extended poleward than any other. Of Kane's conduct under the exceptionally prolonged and adverse circumstances attendant on his second Arctic voyage, it is to be said that he displayed the characteristics of a high and noble character considerate of his subordinates, assiduous in performing his multifarious duties as commander, studying ever to alleviate the mental and physical ailments of his crew, and always unsparing of himself whenever exposure to danger, hardships, or privations promised definite results. It is not astonishing that these qualities won and charmed all his associates, equals or subordinates, and that they followed him unhesitatingly into the perils and dangers that Kane's enthusiastic and optimistic nature led him to brave, with the belief that to will was to do. The career of Kane cannot be more beautifully and truthfully summarized than was done in the funeral sermon over his beer. He has traversed the planet in its most inaccessible places has gathered here and there a laurel from every walk of physical research in which he strayed, has gone into the thick of perilous adventure, abstracting in the spirit of philosophy, yet seeing in the spirit of poesy, has returned to invest the very story of his escape with the charms of literature and art, and dying at length in the morning of his fame, is now lamented with mingled affection and pride by his country and the world. End of chapter 9, part 2. Recording by William Tomko.